Hey, legends, you know, none of our interviews or episodes ever date, ever. They are all timeless and ready for you for when you're ready to listen. Download the lot and rip in. The great ones, they're different. They really are. Not better, just different. Sure, there's a physical power, a mental strength, a complex but resolute constitution too. There's a whole lot more than just the measurables. That's something else, that intangible. It separates us from them. Welcome to the Legend Series on Andy Raymond Unfiltered. Best ever? That's hard to answer. This one, he's always included in the question, though. Carefree, brilliant, natural. But who is Brett Kenny? <laughs> um, well, I'm not a superstar legend, love machine, but, but um, oh, I don't know, just a, a guy, an average sort of guy that um, enjoyed playing his rugby league yeah. and... Um, Admittedly, never really thought about where I'd finish up in the game of yep. rugby league. And as a young bloke, like everyone, you have your favourite team. South was my favourite side and used to follow them. And, and then sort of as I got a bit older, I sort of understood a little more about the game and, and how you play for certain clubs in first grade and, yep. and uh, realised that Parramatta was the club. I was playing for Guildford in the yep. Parramatta junior area and – Realised that um, you know that's the club I got to go to, but yeah, never really had a lot of aspirations about oh, I'll go on and and play for my new country and everything. But but um, and as I got as I got closer to playing at, at Parramatta, I guess I um, that was the thing. Obviously, it was you know to get into to get graded at f- first and then move up the grades. And as I got into first grade, well, then the next step was okay. Well, I'd like to play Origin and. Yeah. Um, was able to achieve that and then go on and play for Australia. But, yeah, just one the guy that just enjoyed playing football. Um, I guess I love my sport. That was a big thing. And, and in a lot of ways it, it probably didn't help me a lot as far as work was concerned. Yep. I mean, if I had the choice and they said, well, you either go to work today or go and play football or go and do something involved with sport, that's what I'd do. Yeah. And I guess in a lot as you get older, you know, I'll be, I'll be sixty this year, and you you start to realise, you know, if I hadn't have had those that thinking back then, maybe I might have been a lot more away from football than yep. what I have. I've, I've had quite a number of jobs, you mm. know, and and um, and I guess you know I've always wanted to remain involved with rugby league. Yeah. Um, had some opportunities with coaching and coached at Penrith for three years, won a competition in uh, 2006 and for some reason was told I wasn't not mm. required the following season. Um, 2010, coached to Parramatta's reserve grade, been Wenty and same situation, made the finals, didn't win the premiership but made the finals. Again, wasn't required the following year. So mm. that was a bit frustrating. But, yeah, you know, I, I just enjoy my life. I, I'm, um, you know, I like to get on with people. Mm. Um, a lot of people sort of find it hard to be, believe that I could just go down to a pub and be drinking with blacks and, you know, just enjoy myself. And I said, well, 
you know, that's what I do. I'm yeah, no different to anyone else. And I, I think that was the way we were brought through the club at Parramatta with the coaching and 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 obviously the senior players that yeah. that played there was that as a young bloke, you know, you you never got too far ahead of yourself and. And then you realise that you know it was it was only a sport, rugby league, and and you know while I was earning good money at the time, it, it was not nothing compared to what they do no. today. But when you think about it, you know he used to say, "Well, you know I'm no better than the guy down the road or, or a doctor in a hospital mm. that's actually saving lives, and all I'm doing is playing football and getting paid for it." So. It sort of it brought down to earth a little, and and I guess that's the way I've been. Plus, my family, my mum and dad always kept me level-headed, you know. So that was a good thing. On that, how do you stay grounded when someone says you're the best in the world at what you do? You've been labelled the best footballer in the world. A lot of us are never going to experience that in any form of life. How do you stay grounded with such a huge rap? Well, I think again, it comes back to the way I've been brought up. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yes, I, 19, I think it was 1986 I was awarded the Golden Boot Award. That's right. Um, as the best rugby league player in the world. My mum and dad, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, that was a great, it's a great achievement. But still, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do yeah. that, you've got a family, you got to, you know. So in a lot of ways that was a good thing. And, and I guess very fortunate with my dad in particular, like he played baseball and he was, I mean, my dad and my uncle were like, I guess, the chapels of baseball. Yep. Everybody knew who they were. Um, he played for Australia, so yeah. he obviously had an idea of what I might have been going through yeah. when I'd reached that level. And um, so he made sure that I never got too far ahead of myself. So I, I was very fortunate um, with my family to to be level, keep me level headed. Plus the people around me. Um, it was always great. It's nice to have people say you're the best in the world and. And it's some sort of achievement, yeah. you know. But um, at the end of the day, so yep, I was the best in the world. But I think that was for one year because I think 1987, I didn't have a great year on the football field, and, and that, I think that's another thing that sort of made me realise that yeah, you know, one year you're the greatest in the world, and after that, you you're really just another footballer. Yeah. And and um, so that was a good thing about it too, you know. I guess if I had a Gone on and, and had another great season, uh, mightn't have helped too much. But um, yeah, I think a couple of things, as I said, family, friends, and uh, also the season I had in '87 probably made me realise that yeah, <laughs> you, you're only good for one season and that's it. The term "best natural footballer" was often used to describe you. What does that mean? Does it mean you couldn't follow a game plan, or does it just mean it happened? <laughs> Well, I, I think probably a bit of both. <laughs> Look, I tell you, there was sometimes I I couldn't follow the game plan, and um, but yeah, I, I, things just sort of happened naturally for me. Yep. And and as I mentioned, my dad played baseball, and it was just a natural progression for me as a kid. I played baseball in the summertime, rugby league in the winter, yep. and obviously baseball, you know, hand and eye coordination very important. And I think that probably played a big part in the way I. I was able to handle the rugby league and, and yeah. the football and do things there. It, it, I was never one for really practising a lot of things. I, I would do some things. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it was, I, I guess, you know, in the book that I, I wrote, it was called The Natural. And, yep. I, and I guess in a lot of ways that's probably 
what what happened. It was just a natural thing for me. Um, Were you coachable still? Oh yeah, you know i i I learnt you know from a young age that you never know everything, and yep. and and um, you're always there to learn things. So you're always. And the other thing was that I was always told was you know you always respect people that want to talk to you. You don't have yes. to agree with what they say, and you don't have to to do what they say. And, I mean, everyone wants to give you advice. And the, but the reality is if you've got respect for someone, you would listen you'd to listen. them and you'd take, probably take that advice. Yep. You may not have respect for them, but you still listen to them and yep. you'd walk away and say thanks very much and, and be done with, you know, and you don't have to do what they say. But Great call. But, um, you know, I, I guess, yeah, I, I'd like to think I was – I was coachable. I suppose you'd have to ask some of the coaches. <laughs> they might say, no, no. He was, you reckon Jack might have argued? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might have argued a few times. But, I, look, I, I really do think that I was very fortunate when you mentioned Jack Gibson. I, yeah. I I feel very fortunate that I was able to play under Jack and play at a young age. Yep. Um, Jack came in in 1981 at Parramatta and I was 20 years of age. So very easily influenced in, on things and – um, I, I've always said um, not only was I a better player, I, I think more importantly I became a better person playing under the coaching of Jack Gibson. People say that about the, the great coaches. They become better footballers, but they become better young men. And as you said, very important. Everyone's got a favourite Jack Gibson story. Does one stand out to you? Yeah, look, as you say, he's got, he's got a few. I, I, um, oh, well, there's a couple, but I, I, just quickly, I, I remember Sturlow saying to Jack one day at uh, training at Granville Park, that was not obviously um, 1982, yep. um, Cumberland Oval had been burnt down after the 81 grand final, and and they were training at Granville Park, and Sturlow said to Jack, you know, for the last few weeks, he'd been struggling with his kicking game, he hadn't problem getting the kick away, but he was always, he seemed to be catching the full back on the full, or the wingers on the full, he couldn't sort of hit the ground, and he asked Jack, has you got any tips? And, and Jack said, well, you know, the best tip I can give you is kick to the seagulls. Now, you look around at where we're out at Parramatta and you think, <laughs> seagulls? Where the hell are the seagulls? So anyway, a couple of weeks later we're playing in the finals at the Sydney Creek Ground and we're in the side of the dressing room looking out, watching a bit of the reserve grade game and suddenly everyone sort of at the same time went, oh, look at that. There were seagulls on the field. Where the seagulls were, there was no players, and thought, "Well, that's Brilliant. what it was." And and I mean, that was the sort of co- I've always classed Jack Gibson as a cryptic coach. He didn't yes. necessarily give you a straight answer; you had to think a bit about it. And um, you know, that was the way he was. But the other one was uh, he always used to say to us, "If ever you're going to be late for training, ring someone and let let them know." Um, he used to also say, "Make sure you take keep forty cents in your pocket." And for all, for all those young ones listening in, that forty cents used to be the co- cost of a phone call. We didn't have mobile That's phones, right. and um, so yeah. And uh, one night at training, we were all there, we were out on the paddock, ready to start our training session. And Dave Lydiard was running late, hasn't rung anyone. Raced down onto the f- football field, and at Granville Park, we trained first grade, trained on the main field, and there were two fields up on a higher level. Yep. So Dave's run down, had a talk to Jack, and the other thing Jack used to say was if you don't ring anyone and you do get to training late, make sure you've got an excuse that I've never heard. And he said, but I've heard them all. Obviously the excuse that he heard from Dave Lydiard, he'd already heard of. And he said to Dave, look, can you do me a favour? He said, go up to the top oval there and get the boy Atkins from reserve grade. He was Graham Atkins who played yep. on the wing. Dave said, yeah, Jack, no worries. And as he started to run off, Jack said, oh, by the way, 
when you get up there, just introduce yourself to Coach Moni, who was a reserve grade coach. <laughs> so in other words, you've just been dropped. Yes. Uh, yes. He had some great stories, Atkins Jack. Atkins into first grade. You're, you can meet John Moni because that's where you're playing at 1.30 on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love it. Hey, legends, the footy is back. Here's my first tip of the season. Make it personal. Your name, your number on your jersey. Official licensed NRL jerseys, retros, polos and training shirts all in the one place. For the hard-running man, the cover-defending woman and the chirpy little ones that remind you of an out-of-control halfback. For an exclusively unfiltered deal, go to yourjersey.com.au forward slash Andy and put Andy in as your coupon code to get a free gift at checkout. Gear up, legends. Mate, you joined the Mighty Eels in 1980. Let's revisit Sunday, July 6 of that year, Redfern Oval, your debut off the bench. What do you remember of your first game in first grade? Oh, it was a lot quicker than I than I expected. Yeah. Um, I probably didn't find it that tough. It probably took me a few weeks to realise that the reason I didn't find it that tough was because of the bloke I was playing outside of, you know. He was pretty good. He wasn't too bad. Yeah, Mick Cronin. He kicked the occasional goal. But, um, yeah, I... I it was funny, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was a South Sydney supporter yes. as a kid and here I am at Redfern Oval sitting on the bench watching first grade and in the back of my mind I'm sort of hoping that South won yep. and then I'm thinking, well, I hope they don't. <laughs> and all of a sudden I get a tap on the shoulder and had to go on and Tony Morrow's had torn a hamstring. So yep. I went out and played the remainder of the, the game out in the centres with Mick Cronin and, um, yeah, it was a lot faster than what I was used to and, and a lot tougher. Um, yep. It was a lot more went into the tackles, Ooh, I'll yes. put it that way. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty good initiation. And then the following week I got named in the starting that side. That was your starting makeup. It was just a, a week later, but it was still in the centres from memory. Was Mick Patterson still Yes, at Mick Patterson was at 5 at, at halfback. Sturlow at halfback. And, and uh, yeah, so I played in the centres outside Mick Cronin. And, um, you know, I – I was, again, I, as I said before, I was very fortunate when I started at Parramatta. Um, you know, I've got to be very thankful for John Peard because he was the first grade coach yep. and he was the guy that brought me into first grade. Um, and from what I was told by Mick Cronin, Arthur Beetson mentioned it to, to Peard and also mentioned to, to the crow, he, he said to him, you need to come up here early instead of getting here at your normal time. He said, I want you to watch this kid. He's going to be playing outside you at some stage. And it was fortunate it was me and, and – um, that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, I've got to be thankful that John Peard actually, you know, took a bit, I believe, took a bit of a risk on on um, on me playing because I was really, I think it was about 82 kilos. I was a skinny-looking, blonde-haired kid. And um, I thought, yeah, you know, it was a bit of a gamble. And fortunately enough for me, it, played, it paid off. But playing outside Mick Cronin, I, I, I believe, I was able to achieve a lot as just, just said earlier, you know, I got the Golden Boot Award and mm. best player in the world and and I believe the reason I was able to do that was because of what happened early on in my playing career and played outside Mick Cranon who really did look after me a lot, you know, as I was saying earlier. I, it took me a few weeks to realise how hard this game was. It didn't seem to be that difficult for me yep. but he made it easy for me. He looked after me and I think that's the reason I was able to achieve because I was able to grow into my position, yep. grow into first grade, become very confident with my ability, and um, and that was because of him. Because I didn't cop too many hard knocks. I think he probably copped a lot 
um, because he wouldn't give me the football and, and looked after me. And I think that's why I became the footballer I did, because of him. We had to explain earlier that there were no mobile phones in these times. We may have to explain now that you said you played as a centre outside Mick Cronin. Yes, yes, kids, that was back in the day where the centres played on the same side of the field. <laughs> played on the inside, same side. centre, outside exactly. centre. Exactly. And the 5'8 threw the ball to the centre. He threw it to another centre. Yep. Um, and even from a scrum, centres were, were beside each other yeah. unless the scrum was in the middle of the field and you didn't have a, a centre playing in the second row, mm. backing into a second row. Yeah, you didn't have full-backs at hooker <laughs> and 5'8s <laughs> at front row either. Uh, the club had come into the competition in 1947, hadn't won a premiership. 1981 comes around. You beat Newtown, 20 points to 11. Your first premiership, the club's first premiership. How important was that? Oh, look, I, I think it was very important, um, not just for the players and the club, but probably more so for the supporters. And yep. I, I mean, it'd been people, you can imagine, there were people around, you know, as kids, in 1947, started following Parramatta and they'd seen Parramatta at the bottom of the table. I remember, as I was saying earlier, I was a South Sydney supporter, mm. went to Cumberland Oval and watched South and, and Parramatta and South gave them a bit of a hiding and, yeah. and that was obviously in the 70s. And um, So they struggled for a long time and all of a sudden, you know, the supporters have got this team that, that looked like they could win a competition and went on and won the premiership against Newtown and... Um, and as you mentioned, it was my f- my first grand final that I'd ever played in. I mm. was never fortunate enough to play as a kid in a grand final, um, and to have it your first one as a first grade grand final was something very special. And and obviously the win was 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 great. And uh, you could you could see that night when we got back to Parramatta Leagues Club, and and I might, might say it, it took quite a while to get from people that know the area in mm. Parramatta to get to. Um, Church Street through to O'Connell Street, which is only like two blocks. Just packed, people uh, everywhere. The bus couldn't get through. There were people on, in the streets. They had to get a police escort to get us into O'Connell Street. Um, and then from there, the players had to – they had the, the bouncers come out from the club. The players actually had to get off on a, in O'Connell Street and get on the top of a Hardy's tabletop truck who Hardy's was a sponsor. Made the sponsor, yeah. Um, and the reason being is because they couldn't fit any more into the club, so they wanted the people outside to at least get the experience of seeing the players. So we, we got on on the tabletop, we were on there, and then we actually virtually been carried in on their shoulders, on the bouncers' shoulders inside the league club and then had to make our way up to the restaurant where we were going to have dinner. Yeah. Um, so dinner got served and we no sooner finished and the word come down that you guys are going to have to get upstairs to the auditorium. And you could see while we were eating, you could see the ceiling in the restaurant was moving. And I thought, what's going on? And it was the people upstairs were stamping their feet, you know, wanting to see the players. So we celebrate, yeah. Yeah, so we got upstairs and it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. And standing up on the stage and, you know, here I was – 1981, I was 20-year-old, yep. uh, as young blokes do, you're looking around the crowd, seeing who's in there, what, you know, all the girls. <laughs> yes. and, and um, so anyway, I actually spotted a girl and, and, and she actually fainted, not because she looked at me, but <laughs> but she actually, she'd fainted and they, they were jammed in that tight. She just fell, fell back on someone and it didn't hit the floor. Wow. Um, and I sort of saw her and pointed it out and it, yeah, they came in and, 
grabbed her and, and sort of brought her to. But, yeah, it was just a massive, massive night. And, and I think probably I think around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning before the players could actually sit down and just go through what we'd actually achieved. Do you realise how important rugby league and sport can be to the community with something like this? I mean, that's a, that's a super story. Yeah, it, it was it was amazing. As I said, I, I'd never experienced anything like it before in my mm. life, and and even back in 1982, the following year where we won the premiership, it just wasn't the same as just 81. The first one stand out. The first one really stands yeah. out, and, and and I think maybe even the the, the Parramatta fans might have become a little complacent yeah. and thinking, oh well, we'll win it again, and which we did, but. Um, Nothing beats 1981, and, and and not just the game, but what happened after the game at the club and yep. and, the, and the supporters. And and I think a lot of times back then, um, you know, if you lived out west, you weren't classed as you know um, quality sort of. But you're people. a Westie, you know. You're yeah. a Westie, and and um, I think all of a sudden now they're able to turn around and say to people, well. We might be Westies, but we run the competition and, and it sort of helped. I think it helped everyone's feelings and they felt a lot better about themselves, you know, that they had a great rugby league team. Premierships in 1981, 1982, 1983. In 1981, I think most of rugby league and rugby league supporters knew how good this side could be. But I think you even surprised a lot of people. Did it surprise you how dominant the Eels were for that period? Yeah, I guess it did. You know, we we were like everyone else. We thought, yeah, we've got a very good side yep. here. Um, I, I believe because of the coaching and and the experience of the senior players, you know, the Stephen Edges, the Mick Cranes, yep. Ray Prices, Ron Hilditch, Bob O'Reilly, um, Kevin Stevens when he came to the club. I mean, these guys – had experienced grand finals mm. before. They knew what it was like to win, to, well, not to necessarily win a grand final, but to play in grand finals yep. and, and how tough it was to get there. So I guess they, in a lot of ways, yeah, believed that they had a good side mm. here and there was a lot of good young players in the team and they knew this is what we've got to do to keep these guys level-headed and not get too far ahead yeah. of themselves. Um plus the coaching staff, um, you know, and, and it's not just the Jack Gibsons and Ron Massage, but also the John Manage yeah. who was coaching first grade, um, uh, sorry, coaching reserve mm. grade and went on to coach first grade, but he had a lot of influence on some of the plays that we did yep. in first grade as well. So it, it was a very good squad of, of people, not just players, but coaching staff and, and players included. And, and I think that's why we were able to sort of go on and, and win the next two yep. competitions. Plus, we we all got on well together. We used to socialise a lot together, yep. and, and I firmly believe that's one of the, the big reasons why we we did win those competitions because it was like we were a family. Yep. And um, you know, you had the older guys who were like the older brothers, and yeah. us young blacks there. And but yeah, we used to socialise all the time. I remember Ray Price every New Year's Eve was at his place. Everyone was there. We we were. In a lot of ways, you'd look back at it now and say, yeah, he kept us all together. Yep. Um, he used to threaten you if you were talking to another club. Did he really? <laughs> he would threaten you, yeah. He'd let you know that he would get you if you <laughs> if you went to another club. So we all sort of, yeah, stuck together. But I think, yeah, that's one of the big reasons for the fact that we all got on well together and, and we're like a family. 
On part two of the Brett Kenny story, we talk about his teammates, the good, the bad and the stories from that wonderful eel side of the 80s. Before you go, we'd love a five-star rating and review on the app you're currently listening on as we continue to spread the word about the Unfiltered Podcast. Make sure you come back soon, legends. Legends.